The Story of the Hero of Temesa Euthymus leaned over the deck of the ship and adjusted the long leather strips that formed his boxing gloves. The olive wreath crown, hastily shoved into his pack as he left Olympia, was wilting away and drying up, but he could not quite bring himself to get rid of it just yet. "'Why don't you have it cast in bronze or something?' asked Pistos, his slave. "'I didn't do that with the other two, said Euthymus, "'and the point is to celebrate being a triple champion. "'You could erect another statue at Olympia?' Yeah, but I want something I can display at home. Commission some kind of commemorative cup? Yeah, that could work, Euthymus mused. He was still staring at the leather straps as they crisscrossed over his red, raw knuckles, lost in his own thoughts, when Pistos stood up straighter, stared toward the shore and said, Hold up, what's going on here? Unable to get a ship straight to Locri, Euthymus had had to sail the long way around to Temesa, on the opposite coast of the foot of Italy planning to stay there a night or two and then start the longish walk home. Neither he nor Pistos knew Temesa well, but from what they had heard it was a fairly normal coastal colony with a lively Greek population. What they could see from the deck, though, did not look normal. As the ship pulled up to the dock, a solemn and gloomy procession could be seen winding its way through the streets of the town. Musicians were beating drums in a slow, funereal beat, and women were wailing and tearing their hair as if at a funeral. But there was no beer, no body being carried along. Instead, the central focus of the procession appeared to be a young girl wearing the yellow veil and flower crown of a bride. Although her face was covered, it was clear from the way she walked and the sounds echoing across the harbour that she was weeping. Not so unusual in a bride, it happened, but everyone around her was weeping too, and that was strange. And while she was dressed for a wedding, she was surrounded by people in the black and grey of mourners. The procession was moving faster than it appeared from its solemn tone, and was heading out of the city and towards a small temple whose pediment was just peeking up out of a thick olive grove near to the shore. "'Something weird is going on here,' said Euthymus. "'Come on!' Euthymus and Pistos disembarked, and hurried through the now empty streets to catch up with the gloomy procession. As they latched on to the tail end of the moving crowd, Euthymus grabbed the nearest person, a young man in a short tunic and neatly oiled hair, and asked him what was going on. "'You're not from around here, are you?' said the young man. "'Obviously not,' said Euthymus testily. "'Now come on, tell me what's up.' The young man sighed. "'Every year,' he said, "'we have to choose the most beautiful maiden from the city "'and offer her up as a bride to the monster in that temple.' Whatever happens in there, she is never seen again. Why? asked Euthymus, but the procession had nearly reached the temple and his question was swallowed up in a rising wave of lamentations. Acting on pure instinct, Euthymus shoved his way to the front of the crowd, Pistos following behind and apologising to everybody as they went. He reached the heart of the procession just as the bride was embracing a veiled woman in black, her mother perhaps, and turning to enter the dark doorway of the temple itself. Stay here, Euthymus told Pistos over his shoulder, and he broke through the protesting crowds to follow the bride into the temple. It took a minute or two for his eyes to adjust to the darkness inside. A few solitary torches burned along the walls, illuminating the dull gleam of old cups and tripods dedicated to... whatever god or spirit this small, dark, pokey temple was dedicated to. The sound of the wind and the sea and the crowd outside had all fallen away, 
and in the almost empty space, Euthymus could clearly hear the quiet, hopeless weeping of the young bride. She was standing in the centre of the floor, shaking from head to toe, her yellow veil quivering and her feet shuffling from one to the other while staying fixed on the spot. As Euthymus' eyes adjusted, he became aware of a movement at the back of the temple. Something was shuffling about behind the cult statue on its raised dais. The statue itself showed a sneering human figure wearing a wolf skin. It was hardly a very flattering picture of a god, though it had been made of gold, so no expense had been spared. Euthymus moved towards the terrified girl in the centre of the room, keeping his eyes on the statue the whole time. He could see something creeping out from behind it, stepping forward into the dim light of the torches. He flattened himself against a pillar, melting into the shadows so he could watch. The thing had the rough shape of a man, but it was completely black. Not a dark-skinned man, but a man shape that was the colour and texture of a burnt corpse. A wolfskin was slung almost carelessly over its shoulders. The thing did not seem in any hurry, did not move with any sense of urgency. As it came forward, it stood up tall, rising to a tall man's height, and came slowly towards the girl, seeming to look at her closely with hollowed-out eyes. The girl put shaking hands to the bottom of her veil as if to lift it, and Euthymus decided it was now or never. He jumped forward into the light and flung himself towards the girl, knocking her down before she could lift her veil. He raised his arm across his face as the blackened thing reared up and roared, howling like a wolf in anger and disgust. Euthymus stood tall to match the thing's height and held up his fists in a fighting stance. The girl scurried away and crouched by a pillar behind him. The creature slashed out at Euthymus with claw-like hands, but Euthymus was ready for him. He parried the blow and hit back with a punch to the thing's long nose, then the other hand into its stomach. The creature was knocked back for a moment, but returned with renewed force. A more man-like punch landed squarely on Euthymus' cheekbone and he was momentarily dizzy. He staggered backwards, another punch landing in his chest and winding him, and was almost concerned. But as the creature pursued him down the aisle of the temple, the girl got to her feet behind it, grabbed a dusty urn from a display shelf and thwacked the creature over the head with it. Her blow didn't do much to the thing, but it did become distracted, turning on her with another howl of fury. That gave Euthymus the chance he needed. He jumped back up, stepped back into position between girl and beast, and landed another three blows, head, neck, stomach, one, two, three. As Euthymus got into his stride and started to land blow after blow, the creature seemed to realise it was beaten. It started to retreat towards the door of the temple, but Euthymus pursued it relentlessly. The leather wraps on his hands were slipping with sweat and grease and blood, his tunic was torn, he was breathing heavily and his legs were shaking, but he would not let the thing go. Next thing he knew, the two of them were tumbling out into the daylight. The creature was even more repulsive in the sunshine, more man-like but also clearly burnt black all over with sharp white teeth that stood out when it opened its red mouth to howl. Euthymus heard the shocked gasps of the crowd around them as they bowled forward into everyone's full view, stunned into terrified silence at first. Then, as he continued to hit the beast over and over again while it cowered and slunk almost on its hands and knees away from the temple, the heavy breathing started to turn to tentative cheers. Spurred on, Euthymus carried on pursuing the creature, getting in as many hits as he could, not so many now as the thing was moving faster and faster across the rocky sand towards the shore. The cheers of the crowd grew louder and louder, and by the time they reached the water, the ecstatic roaring in Euthymus' ears was louder and happier and more joyful than any time he had won an Olympic victory. The creature hesitated on a rock that was jutting over the sea. 
It turned and snarled one more time at Euthymus, but he raised his bloodied fists, ready to go again. The creature was not. It turned its head away and leaped into the sea. Euthymus dashed to the edge of the rock and peered over, just in time to see the thing's burned flesh melt away into the water until it was nothing but a stain on the ocean. Euthymus had barely caught his breath before he was grabbed on all sides by joyful hands wanting to hug and kiss and caress him. He tried as politely as he could to push them off, until he felt the tug of one small hand on his tunic that he was very glad to see. There was the bride from the temple in her torn yellow veil, one hand clutching at his clothing, the other still holding that dusty old urn. He took it gently from her and set it down, and she set both hands to the bottom of her veil and slowly raised it. Underneath she was beautiful, so beautiful, and smiling. Tears were still running down her face, but they were now clearly tears of joy. This is my wedding day, she said shyly, but I seem to be missing a husband. Will you be my husband? Gladly, said Euthymus, without even thinking, and there in the sunshine, the light glinting off the rippling sea in front of the whole population of Temesa, he embraced her. Pistos clapped and cheered along with everyone else and immediately started making a mental list of all the things he would need to buy for his new mistress, starting with a slave woman to look after the young slip of a thing. But there was one thing on his mind that he could not quite shake first. He turned to the same young man they had talked to before, still standing nearby. "'Excuse me, sir,' he said politely, "'but if you don't mind, I would really like to know "'why was this young woman being taken off as bride for that monster?' "'Ah, that,' said the young man. "'We don't like to talk about that. "'It is too sad for us and too shameful.' "'Not any more,' said Pistos. "'My master has just freed you all from the obligation. "'Don't you owe him an explanation?' "'Very well,' said the young man, "'and he told Pistos the story.' A winter's day, the wind cold and the rain lashing at the rocks by an angry sea. A huge crowd erupted from the city, chasing a solitary man through the gnarly grey branches of the olive trees. The man cowered, covering his face with his hands, arms raised protectively over his head. But it did him no good, for every single man, woman or child in the crowd was pelting him with the biggest, hardest, sharpest stones they could find. The fugitive reached the shore and paused on a rock that jutted out over the sea. Mercy, he cried, mercy! He wrapped a wolfskin around himself in a desperate attempt to protect himself from the stones, but there was no mercy here and it would not help. A burly man with red weeping eyes stepped forward. Did you show my daughter mercy, he demanded, and he slammed a rock the size of his fist into the man's face. More stones followed and more until the figure lay senseless on the rock, streaks of blood running down his body with the raindrops. The eye of the storm came over the town and there was a pause in the rain. People grabbed torches and oil lamps and hastily slung oil across the body and set it alight. For as long as the rain held off, they burned him right there on the rock, and someone grabbed a handful of dirt to throw it symbolically over the body. Then the first drops of a new wave of rain fell from the sky and they gave the whole thing up. The burly man hurled the body over the rock and into the sea, where the splash was barely heard in the oncoming storm. Somewhere out in the nearby woods, the wolves howled. It was several weeks before anyone noticed anything was wrong. An elderly woman died and it was sad. A child died and it was a tragedy. A young man, a young woman, an old man, a teenage boy. 
One sudden, unexpected and unexplained death was just one of those things. Two were a sad coincidence. Three or four became a mystery, and as the numbers turned to six, seven, eight, it became a plague. The population of Temesa almost halved within three months, and most of the remaining inhabitants started to prepare to leave for good. Everyone had lost someone, some people had lost everyone. The city was threatening to become a ghost town. And then, by chance, the cause was discovered. A woman checking on her married daughter saw a figure bending over the young woman's bed. It was blackened all over, charred like something half-burned on a pyre with a wolfskin flung carelessly over its shoulders. It leaned over the woman's daughter, breathing some foul breath into her mouth. The woman screamed and hurled her bag of medicines at the thing. It turned to her and howled and tried to grab at her, but the family cat pounced, yowling and shrieking and dragging its claws down the thing's mangled body. The daughter and the cat both gave their lives, but the mother was able to get away and now the people finally knew what it was that was killing them. It was the ghost of the vile criminal they had half-burned and thrown into the sea. Afraid that the vengeful spirit might simply follow them if they tried to leave, the town elected a small group of men, including the burly man who had finished off the creature, to travel all the way across the sea to Greece and consult the famous Delphic Oracle. The journey was rough, but despite their seasickness, all six of the chosen men found that they felt better the instant they left Temesa. They realised that a sickness had been hanging over all of them, pounding on their heads, settling in the bottom of their stomachs and taking their sleep at night. Every night they spent aboard ship, though their stomachs rolled and sleep was hard to come by, they felt better. Their heads were clearer, what sleep they did get was deeper, and as soon as their feet hit the shore, their stomachs were cured. It was coming into spring by now. The sun was shining and red and yellow flowers sprung up by the sides of the road. As they got closer and closer to the great precinct of Apollo at Delphi, the road got busier and busier. By the time they came around a bend in the road and could look up to see the shrine looming over them and hear the sounds of the runners on the track high above it, they were surrounded on all sides by people, young and old, rich and poor. Official delegations from several states could be identified by their clean, formal outfits and lavish gifts. Others looked nervous, hopeful their small offerings would be enough to win them an audience. The six Temesan men smoothed down their travel cloaks, brushed their hair with oil and tried to look as presentable as possible. They had to wait another two days, but they played up their status as an official delegation as much as they could, and eventually they got in. Passing under an impressive arched doorway inscribed with the words, Know Yourself!, they were shown into a small, somewhat dark and plain waiting room lined with stone benches. It was hot and stuffy in there, and they found themselves sweating through their spring travel cloaks. Their gifts of gold and bronze tripods were taken away, and the priests took a note of their question. Can we free our city from the ghost that is killing us, or should we flee? And they disappeared into the holiest part of the shrine. Although the men leaned forward and craned their necks, they could catch no glimpse of the famous Pythian priestess, the oracle herself. They could only hear her moaning while a sweet smell like incense wafted around the edges of the closed door. Finally, the priests emerged and they stood up nervously, awaiting their answer. "'You are not to leave Temesa,' said the first priest firmly. "'The Pythia was quite clear. It is forbidden. "'You or your ancestors founded the city, and there you must stay.' The men glanced at each other in the gloom. It was not quite what they were expecting. 
but some were reluctant to leave Temesa anyway, so it was acceptable. How can we free ourselves of the ghost that is killing us? One of them dared to ask. You must propitiate this man that you have killed, said the second priest, for he is a hero and beloved of the gods. What? cried the burly man, outraged. You must set apart a sanctuary for him, an area of sacred ground, said a third priest, and there you must build him a temple and make offerings to him. The burly man opened his mouth to speak, but the priests were not done. And, said a fourth priest, you must make him a sacrifice. Every year you must present him with the most beautiful maiden in Temesa to be his bride. The burly man's fury was so great he went completely silent. The other five men, shoulders slumped, asked if there was no other way they could free their town from the curse. Apollo has spoken, said the first priest, and you have had your turn. Now you must leave. The burly man was so angry he never spoke again from that day. His companions were no less upset, though they agreed that they had no choice but to do as the oracle told them or there would be no one left alive in Temesa by the next winter. We will become a laughing stock, a joke, said one of the younger men miserably. Whenever someone demands payment of someone they owe a debt themselves, people will say, send them to Temesa, they will pay it. I wonder who this hero is, said one of the older men who was so beloved of the gods that they would punish us in this way. But none of the others had an answer for him. Polites was not popular on the ship. They had lost the wind for a couple of weeks and supplies ran low, and he had stolen water beyond his allotted ration. During ten days of storms, he had hidden below decks as much as possible, only coming out when someone found him cowering and hauled him up on deck to help pull in the sails or sent him to join the rowers. He had eaten so many lotus flowers when they pulled in on the coast of Africa that he had nearly been left behind altogether. And he was drunk, always drunk, drinking unmixed wine and even, when they came across it, barbarian beer. But he was one of them, a veteran of Troy, a hero of Greece, he had killed many Trojans in battle, he had fought in the greatest war between Greeks and barbarians of all time. He had even wounded the great Trojan prince Hector in battle once. Just a scratch, but it was still a pretty impressive achievement. And so they all felt they were stuck with him. The gods would certainly be angry if they turned a hero of Troy off their ship. They were not happy about it, though. When the witch Circe turned them all into pigs, most of his comrades said it was an improvement in Polites' case. When they blocked their ears with wax so they could sail past the sirens and resist their sweet song, several of his mates, thinking if he killed himself they would not be to blame, tried to pull the wax out of his ears and encouraged him to leap off the side of the ship to his doom. They need not have bothered. Knowing that they must pass between the twin terrors of the man-eating monster Scylla and the eternal whirlpool of Charybdis, Odysseus came into port at Temesa for a brief bit of rest and relaxation, to prepare himself and his men for the trials ahead. They spent the evening in a local tavern, drinking and enjoying themselves. Polites, everyone observed, had once again got more drunk than anyone else. Not wanting to be near him when he was in a particularly belligerent state, they all left him to it. A storm blew in, and they were unable to leave port as planned the next morning, and Polites was missing. Feeling he ought to at least try to track down the man, after all, they might need every hand they had for the coming trials, Odysseus set off into the city to find him. When he saw a crowd chasing a fugitive down the rain-soaked streets, pelting him with rocks and stones, Odysseus did not need to get near the man to know it was Polites. 
He hung back and watched as the townsfolk hounded the drunkard to the shore, finished the job they had started, half-burned the body and then chucked the remains into the sea. He heard the wolves howling in the woods as the rain started up again and knew they would have to wait another day before they could sail. Oh well, Odysseus said to himself, that's that then. He returned to his ship, cancelled all shore leave and ordered everyone to stay aboard and sailed away the next morning as soon as the sun rose over the now still wine-dark sea. The end. Welcome back to Creepy Classics. I'm Juliet Harrison. This is the podcast retelling and discussing ancient, medieval and early modern ghost stories with episodes up roughly every two months. So I have been putting off doing this story for ages and ages and ages. Um, Stories known as the Hero of Temesa. It's from Pausanias, uh, 6.6.7 to 11, but you can also read versions of the story at Callimachus Aetia, Pliny's Natural History, uh, Strabo's Geography, and Elian's Varia Historia. It's a well-known folktale from the ancient world. And it also became um, a saying, a proverb. Uh, Pseudo-Plutarch says, when someone demands payment only to be found owing himself, he has become the hero in Temesa. So I mentioned that in the story. So it's a very, very well-known folktale. It centres around a ghost, and I knew I needed to do it (laughs) at some point. Um, But the core of the story is sexual violence, which I just don't particularly like writing about. Um, And I've been putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. Um, And then I I quite fancied doing a backwards episode. Um, I'm a big fan of um, a couple of anthology shows, Inside Number Nine and uh, Black Mirror. I don't think Black Mirror has done a backwards episode yet, but Inside Number Nine did one a few years ago. Kind of every sci-fi show, not even just sci-fi shows, ER's done a backwards episode. Bluey, the children's cartoon, if you know a preschooler, you know what Bluey is. Um, They've done a backwards episode and it was just one of those things. I was like, I kind of want to try my hand at a backwards episode needed some kind of reason for doing it backwards other than that I felt like doing it um and I thought maybe that that was the solution to the fact that I I just I mean it, the story is a happy ending because Euthymus the boxer who's an Olympic champion boxer um probably a real person which doesn't make the story real but Euthymus was probably real but he uh rescues this maiden this damsel in distress from this monster and he kills defeats the monster Um, he's a ghost who's already dead (laughs) Euthymus defeats the monster and marries the girl and it's a very traditional fairy tale with a lovely happy ending so the ending is fine but the reason that the inverted commas hero this is a technical Greek term rather than a description of his personality um, the reason that uh, Polites will call him which is what Strabo names him um, has been a vengeful ghost in the first place is that he got drunk and raped one of the women in the town And so the townspeople stoned him to to death. And I just didn't want to write that bit. Um, So when I decided to do it backwards, I thought, okay, uh, if I do this structure, I can skip over that bit and just go straight into the stoning. And and, uh, hopefully that will work. So that was my way of tackling this story that I knew if I'm going to cover ancient ghost stories, it's getting a bit kind of ridiculous that I haven't done this one yet. Because along with... um, Pliny's uh, Haunted House, which I did a couple years back. It's probably one of the best known ghost stories from the ancient world. I thought, I've got to do it. So, 
here we are. <laughs> My attempt to do the hero of Temesa without scenes of sexual violence. Because <laughs> I don't like it. Um, so yes, Polites, uh, in a classical context, is the hero of the title because he is one of Odysseus' men. So that makes him technically a hero. So being a hero in the ancient world is not about uh, your personal characteristics. It's about your ability to kill other people, basically, and to earn glory for yourself. So everybody who goes in the Trojan War, or at least all of the leaders, um, some of the kind of fighting men don't get hero status, like Thocytes, who's the lower class man, Odysseus whacks over the head with a stick. He doesn't get to be a hero, but uh, upper class fighters in Troy are all technically heroes. Uh, in a modern context, I would say we can interpret the hero of the story as Euthymus the boxer, triple Olympic champion who heroically rescues the damsel uh, and so on. So I, I think, you know, the title as modern um, readers, we could say it refers to Euthymus, but technically it, it refers to Polites. Uh, I had a look at Daniel Ogden's book, The Werewolf in the Ancient World, when I was preparing this, uh, which is a fairly recent publication where Ogden talks about this story in the context of werewolf stories. You will have noticed that the ghost is wearing a wolf skin. I had a kind of recurring motif of, of wolves going throughout it. Um, Pausanias tells the story and then he describes a picture he's seen of the same story. He doesn't actually go to, to Mesa. So Pausanias is writing a description of Greece. Um, and he's describing um, Olympic victors and gets distracted and starts talking about Temesa. But he doesn't actually go to Temesa because that's in Italy. But he does say he's seen a picture of this story somewhere as well. And that's where the ghost is black in colour. And this is black as in burned, not black as in dark skinned. So black in colour and wearing a wolf skin. And he also names the ghost, in this case not Polites, which is the name Strabo gives the ghost, uh, one of Odysseus's men, um, Pausanias uh, names the ghost Lycas, which is essentially Greek for wolf, Lukos, Lycos is Greek for wolf. So there is <coughs> a connection with werewolves and stories about werewolves and Ogden analyses this story as a werewolf story. Having said that, Pausanias does very all, clearly also describe the, the thing as a ghost. So he just can't seem to quite make up his mind which one it is. Ogden also separates the main story from the description of the picture. Ogden identifies them as basically two different versions of the folktale. There's the main story about Euthymus that Pausanias tells, and there's the picture of Euthymus fighting this creature. Um, I've just combined everything together. So it's mainly based on um, the two versions of the story from Pausanias blended together and a bit of Strabo uh, in my version. The most significant difference between the two versions in Pausanias is that in the second version, in the picture, the sacrificed youth was male, not female. Uh, I went with female because I was going with the classical fairy tale trope. Um, and I was then able to kind of have her dressed as a bride and so on. Um, so I, I went with the female version, but there's the second version, the victim is male. I described the procession uh, to make this sacrifice as basically a mix between a wedding and a funeral. So the yellow veil and the flower crown is the, the dress of a bride, um, whereas black and grey are the colours of mourning. People would wear black or grey if they were in mourning and at a funeral. And in a funeral procession, you'd process through with the, the body on a bier. 
and uh, women would be doing ritual lamentations. So uh, wailing, possibly pulling out hair, scratching their face, that kind of thing. And that was part of the, the job of women at a funeral. So I basically trying to imagine how are they going to go about sacrificing this girl to this ghost um i thought okay well they'll give her a funeral procession but she'll be dressed as a bride because the story is fairly specific um in that version uh that she is the bride of the ghost now presumably the ghost rapes and kills each woman each year um that's what i assume from that description of her as a bride and then they go into the temple. So uh, in Greek religion, uh, animal sacrifice takes place outside of the temple, not inside. So the altar in a Greek temple is outside the, the temple within the sacred area. Inside the temple is where people bring physical gifts for, for the god or whatever the temple's dedicated to. So that's why I've got the temple described as you know, it's fairly dark. There's just a few torches and you have much in the way of windows. Uh, and there's a cult statue in there. So the focal point um, where you might imagine an altar in a Christian church um, is a cult statue, uh, which could be various materials. But I decided they probably they'd gone for gold just to uh, really try and placate this <laughs> vengeful spirit. That would be very expensive. I don't think most of them were gold. Some of them were. Um, and then they've got the, the various offerings that people have brought over the years, kind of stored around the edges of the inside of the temple. I made Euthymus very slightly more heroic than he is in Pausanias. Um, in Pausanias' version, he's wearing armour. Um, and he does. he sees the girl first, he sees how beautiful she is. And then she says, if you save me, I will marry you. So I made him a bit more heroic by not having to see her <laughs> she's uh ancient uh greek weddings brides would be veiled and then they would unveil themselves to show themselves to their husband just like in european weddings now uh, it's a pretty ancient custom so um i didn't have her, him see her and i had him just kind of in his regular clothes with his boxing gloves so ancient boxing gloves are made of leather straps wrapped around the hands this very famous boxer statue called boxer at rest which is a hellenistic statue uh, it was excavated in Rome uh, near the ancient baths of Constantine uh, and you can see images of that online and you can very clearly see these leather wraps that form the boxing gloves. Olympic athletes competed naked. Obviously, Euthymus is not competing, so he's not naked. <laughs> so I just had him in his clothes, but uh, I had him dressed more like um, he would be for a boxing match rather than in armour like a soldier. So the ghost being given the fairest maiden as a wife and a new one every year pretty clearly implies uh, human sacrifice, regardless of whether it's a ghost or a werewolf. <laughs> that uh, seems to be what's going on here. Whether human sacrifice took place in real life in ancient Greece is uh, contested um, and is a point of debate. There are some possible examples, particularly from early Greece and Minoan Crete, of what might be um, real life human sacrifice uh, there's a double shaft tomb at Lefkandi with remains of a man and a woman the position of the woman suggests she might have been a human sacrifice there's an altar uh, in Crete um, which has uh, the remains of a young man on the altar which again suggests possible human sacrifice there's a very grim room at Knossos uh, called the room of children's bones which is exactly what it sounds like. Um, I teach this, so th this is a 
a very short five minute version of a three hour lecture that I'm sort of going through at the moment. Uh, and when I teach it with my students, we always talk about, you know, what might this be? Um, one of the things that always comes up when we look at the room of children's bones is, you know, is it a serial killer? Um, that one could just as easily be a sick human being. Uh, but those are all um, quite early possible real life examples um, of human sacrifice. There is a lot of human sacrifice in Greek mythology. Um, now, interestingly, in Pseudo-Plato's text Minos, um, so this would be an Athenian text, uh, the speaker says, it is illegal for us to sacrifice humans and actually unholy, but the Carthaginians make such sacrifices on the basis that they are holy and legal for them. And it is not just barbarian men that use alternative laws. Even men in the Lycaean festival make this kind of sacrifice even though they are Greek. That's Ogden's translation of that passage. So there's a lot of possibilities here. It may be that this is something that only happens in mythology and that people from other city-states think it's really happening elsewhere, but it's not. It may be that it's illegal in Athens, but not in other city-states. It may be something practiced in an earlier period, but not so much in later periods. Um, it's very hard to tell exactly what is going on. But it is extremely common in mythology. The most famous is probably Iphigenia, who is uh, sacrificed because Agamemnon has annoyed the goddess Artemis and the winds are not right to sail to Troy, and in order to placate Artemis, he has to sacrifice his daughter Iphigenia. So he tells her she's going to get married to Achilles, um, but actually sacrifices her. Or in some versions, Artemis whisks her away, and actually Iphigenia lives, but her mother thinks she's dead, and that causes a whole bunch of other problems. Um, but there are other myths of human sacrifice. Sometimes they're combined with cannibalism as well. There's a few myths about um, people being unknowingly fed human flesh. And one of them relates once again to werewolves and is the one referred to in the text by Pseudo-Plato, um, the Lycaea. So there's a myth. This man, Lycaon, or his sons, different versions, fed the gods use human flesh and then they were turned into a wolf or wolves as a punishment. Uh, Ogden also notes that Lycaon treats a human as an animal by sacrificing them. So that, again, kind of reinforcing that the main type of blood sacrifice in ancient Greece is animal sacrifice that's core to their religion so the question of whether they would ever really sacrifice a human um, is the thing that we can't quite work out a popular interpretation of the myth is that rites of passage might reenact a myth involving human sacrifice but without actual human sacrifice itself <clears throat> and this is in several contexts so uh, there's a festival called the Arctea at Browron where girls dress up as bears and then it's got kind of the story of Iphigenia behind it and you can see there's also a common theme along with the theme of werewolves um, there's also a common theme of young women dying instead of getting married and that is also in the myth of Persephone who gets carried off by Hades the idea of a young woman getting married as death or dying instead of getting married is really common it's to do with this rite of passage women get married between about 12 and 15 um, they might die in childbirth or they might not but it's risky. And of course, the the maiden dies and becomes a mother, assuming that they survive the process. So these stories are part of people going through, women going through this rite of passage where they get married and they um, then kind of go through this dangerous process um, of hopefully having children. And then in the men's case, 
this weird werewolf connection <laughs> I don't have an explanation for um and uh, one possibility is that the festival of uh, the Lycaea may have been have involved boys dressing as wolves and pretending to be wolves based on this myth about somebody who was turned into a wolf. Um, they have found uh, bones of an adolescent young man there, which suggests there could have been some real human sacrifice. I think we're fairly confident it's not real werewolves. Um, there may have been real human sacrifice and that text from Pseudo-Plato does say specifically that they sacrifice men in the Lycaean festival. So it's possible that uh, young men were in fact sacrificed in that festival or it's possible that they would dress as wolves and the boy would die to become a man symbolically. And we honestly don't know which it is. That was a, a bit of a mad run through what is a much longer lecture. So apologies if that was a bit all over the place. <laughs> How do I put this three hour lecture into five minutes? That's a very basic introduction to the topic of human sacrifice in ancient Greece. Um, I also, of course, mentioned the ancient Olympic Games because Euthymus is a triple Olympic champion. These are one of several contests, um, major Pan-Hellenic Games. So Pan-Hellenic Games is where all of the different Greek city-states can enter. Um, so ancient Greece is made up of all these separate city-states who share Greek culture and Greek language. Um, and anybody who was Greek could enter the Pan-Hellenic Games. And there were four major Pan-Hellenic Games that were held regularly. The Olympic and Pythian Games every four years, the Isthmian Games every two years, and the Nemean Games every two years. The Pythian Games took place at Delphi, where the oracle is. And the running track, I've been to the running track at Delphi, and I, I put it in the story just because I vividly remember how high up that running track was and how tired we all were climbing to get to it <laughs> it's a lot higher up than the sanctuary where the oracle was it's right like at the top of the mountain um so i had to put in a reference to how high up the running track at delphi is um so these are religious sites the the games will be held at religious sites olympia was a great sanctuary of zeus um and then they would also have the running track and they would have the games and it, it's it's a religious festival combined with an athletic context essentially and the athletics context at Olympia was traditionally founded in 776 BCE and was one of the oldest and most famous. Events at the ancient Olympics included foot races, jumping, discus throwing, javelin throwing, wrestling, the pentathlon, which is a combination of those five things, boxing, and the pankration, which is another combat sport. So they're quite keen on combat sports. That's why we still have Greco-Roman wrestling in the modern Olympics, albeit modern Greco-Roman wrestling isn't quite the same and we don't do it naked either. Prizes at the Olympics included an olive crown, which was the main prize. You got the right to put up a statue to yourself in the Sanctuary of Zeus at Olympia, which Euthymus uh, did, according to Pausanias. Athenians could claim a free meal from the city for the rest of their lives, and you got money. <laughs> and of course, you also became famous and could get money in all sorts of other ways. Uh, athletes could also commission victory odes, poems, um, celebrating their success. Uh, amphorae were not prizes at the Olympic Games, um, so the big big decorated pots were given as prizes in the Panathenaic Games rather than the Olympic Games. Um, in the Iliad, which is set much, much earlier in the Bronze Age, um, tripods are given as prizes. But at the Olympics, the main prize was the Olive Crown, and then these various rites, and then you could just you know, tell everybody, I'm an Olympic victor, and then you would be able to make money in other ways. 
I also needed to describe consulting the Delphic Oracle for this story. Uh, There's a lot in this story. This is partly why I put off doing it for so long. Um, It's really complicated. So the Delphic Oracle was the most important oracle in classical Greece. It famously had the words know yourself written across the top of the entrance, uh, gnothi seauton in Greek. It was the oracle that told Croesus he would destroy a great empire and did not specify that it meant his empire, not his enemy. Told the Athenians when they were being attacked by the Persians to use wooden walls. Some people thought that was wooden fences. They got burned to death. Some people thought it was ships and they defeated the Persians. It was quite political important in the classical Greek period when this story takes place. By the time Pausanias and Plutarch were writing, it was more in decline. Uh, so that's 2nd century CE in the Roman period, and it was more kind of small private use by individuals. In the classical period when the story takes place, it was um, delegations from cities were going there for political reasons, and it was extremely important. Plutarch, second century writer, was a priest there and he described um, the process of going to consult the oracle. He says, uh, the room in which they seat those who would consult the god is filled from time to time with a delightful fragrance coming on a current of air which bears it towards the worshippers as if its source were in the Holy of Holies. So people wouldn't actually go into where the, the woman who is the oracle, this is the very famous setup where the oracle is actually a, a woman uh, who goes into a state of religious ecstasy and talks nonsense and then the priests interpret that for um, the, the customers. Uh, So he says this smell which comes out of this holiest place where she is, where they're not allowed to go, is like the odour which the most exquisite and costly perfumes send forth. It is likely that this is produced by warmth or some other force engendered there. If this does not seem credible, you will at least all agree that the prophetic priestess herself is subject to differing influences varying from time to time which affect that part of her soul with which the spirit of inspiration comes into association. She does not always keep one temperament. Uh, many annoyances and disturbances of which she is conscious and many more unperceived lay hold upon her body and filter into her soul. Whenever she is replete with these, it is better she should not go there and surrender herself to the control of the god when she is not completely unhampered, but in a state of emotion and instability. So he refers to obviously mood changes within the woman herself. But he also mentions a smell and a warmth. So much debate about what Plutarch is describing. And some people have suggested that the oracle is sitting on uh, two fault lines, the point where they meet, and that there's some kind of natural gas, which is what Plutarch describes as this warmth, uh, which is essentially uh, affecting her mind, um, which sends her into this uh, state, altered state, where she prophesies. Um, and that that's kind of what's going on at the Oracle. Uh, it's an article in Clinical Toxicology from 2002 that set out that theory. But not everybody accepts that the Oracle was on this kind of cross point between two fault lines, because obviously it's two and a half thousand years later. So we don't know for sure exactly where fault lines were um, that long ago. And they're not sure that gases produced by the fault lines would have had that particular effect uh, anyway. Um, so it, it's intensely debated. I mean, Plutarch could be describing incense. He could be describing something else that would alter the mind of the prophetess that isn't gases. Um, who knows exactly what was going on for the poor woman. Um, but I used that description from Plutarch um, to at least kind of get a sense of the process of consulting the oracle, even though Plutarch's writing much later, I'm assuming that the process wouldn't have changed too much. So if you're interested in any of that, that was a 
pretty whistle-stop discussion of half a dozen different topics in Greek religion because this story uh, covers an awful lot of stuff. Uh, the story itself is available from Pausanias at theoi.com, so it's uh, 6.7. You can read the Odyssey at Poetry in Translation. Uh, of course, I referred to the Odyssey at the end. I didn't even mention that. Um, Polites is a sailor. Um, I got his personality not only from the fact that he gets drunk and rapes somebody, um, but also from... Um, there's a line in Pausanias where he talks about how the the people have stoned um, the hero and Odysseus thought nothing of this loss and sailed away. Um, so I decided that this was clearly someone who just had a horrible personality in every way if Odysseus really didn't care at all that he'd been stoned to death. Um, so that was where that kind of bit came in. And I took um, a few bits and pieces, of course, from the Odyssey. I added in a couple of incidents from C.S. Lewis's Voyage of the Dawn Treader, um, one of my favourite books. So I gave him a couple of the naughty things Eustace does in Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And then I referred to a few incidents from the Odyssey, from the adventures of Odysseus in the Odyssey. Um, so that's from the kind of middle few books of the Odyssey. Um, and you can read that at Poetry and Translation. Uh, I mentioned Daniel Ogden's book, The Werewolf in the Ancient World, um, which is quite recent. Also, some of the ideas I've talked about around human sacrifice. Um, I talked about in Ken Dowden's Death and the Maiden from the 80s. Um, so Ken was my PhD supervisor, so I'm quite familiar with some of his ideas on uh, Greek mythology and human sacrifice. And he talked a lot about the myth of Iphigenia and the Arctea Brauron uh, and this... Um, recurring set of stories about uh, young women's death at the point of marriage. I also used Mireille M. Lee's Body Dress and Identity in Ancient Greece um, for details of bridal dress, funeral dress, um, to a lesser extent the boxing. You can read about the boxer statue at the Metropolitan Museum of Arts website and about the Olympic Games more generally. The British Museum also has some information about the Olympic Games and the Penn Museum has some stuff about prizes and commercialism around the Olympic Games. And there's a gorgeous map of Odysseus's journey home, which I used to work out whereabouts this story would fit in terms of all the adventures from the Odyssey, which things have already happened and which things haven't happened yet. Uh, from worldhistory.org, it has this absolutely beautiful map somebody's made of the journeys of Odysseus. If you have access uh, to academic articles and journals on JSTOR, uh, you might also want to look at uh, Darren LaHue's Drugs and the Delphic Oracle in the Classical World. Uh, and I also used uh, Kostas uh, Vlasopoulos's Athenian Slave Names and Athenian Social History from Zeitschrift für Papyrologie und Epigraphique, uh, just because I needed a name for Euthymus's slave. Um, and I wanted to try and be reasonably accurate, so <laughs> I looked them up in that. So hopefully that all made some kind of sense. I've completely lost track of everything I've talked about at this point. Um, hopefully the backward story made some kind of sense as well. Um, I have had a request to do something else, Scandinavian. So I'm going to make every effort to do a Scandinavian one um, for the next uh, episode, which will be either the end of August or more likely the beginning of September. So it'll be uh, beginning of September. There'll be the next episode of Creepy Classics with probably something Norse. Um, which means I need to go and do a bunch of research on uh, Norse mythology. So I hope you all have a lovely summer in the meantime. Creepy Classics was written and performed by Juliet Harrison. 
The music was composed and performed by Ed Harrison, with vocals by Olivia Knops. It was produced by Juliet Harrison, with assistance from Newman University. 